It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Dave Witzkin, CEO of Universal Engineering Sciences. UES is a leading engineering and consulting company that is recognized as the fastest growing AEC firm in the U.S. and Canada. They continue to expand operations with 67 branches in nearly 20 states and more than 3,100 professionals. Most recently, Dave served as the president of Brand Safway's Industrial Energy and Commercial Business for the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Brand Safway is a provider of services and products to the industrial, commercial, and infrastructure end markets worldwide. Dave worked in various global executive leadership roles throughout his 17 years at the company, including M&A, sales, and general management. Previously, Dave spent 18 years at General Electric in various leadership positions, and he received his BS in mechanical engineering from the University of Cincinnati and an MBA from Westminster College, where he currently serves as an advisory board member. Dave currently lives in Orlando, Florida, where he welcomes the heat after many years in the colder clime of Canada. Dave Witzkin, welcome into the corner office. Thanks, Brant. It's great to be here. Where do we find you on the planet today? I'm in Orlando, which is the headquarters for the UES business. Nice. Well, I'm just down the road in North Palm Beach, having returned here after uh, a summer away. So greetings. I hope the 90 degree weather is uh, soon to uh, escape you up there, but I, I understand it's been pretty hot and humid this summer. I'm, I'm enjoying it, to be honest. So, <laughs> you I like seven one, years huh? in Canada. I made a promise not to uh, not to ever complain about the heat. There you go. There you go. Great. Well, listen, we always kind of kick things off, uh, understanding a little bit about your early years, Dave. So tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, thank you. I um, I grew up in a small town just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was a town of about 5,000 people. Um, I'm the oldest of three, so I have two younger sisters and my, my parents were, it was, it was a great family to grow up in. My mom was, could have won a Nobel prize for being supportive and loving and caring and parent. And my dad was, my dad was an engineer and went to school at night, uh, to get a master's degree. And I think my sisters and I actually attended his graduation and he was the kind of constant force of pushing us to be better. So it was really a great balance of support and challenge. And both of my parents worked growing up. So my sisters and I could attend private school through all through high school. And uh, my parents, you know, really had and instilled strong values. Their, their, their word 
was bond. Honesty was expected. They both really believe in education and hard work and commitment and especially accountability uh, at a young age. So um, I, I really had a great, uh, my developmental years were, were something I look very fondly on when I That's look awesome. back. That's awesome. What were some of those, uh, you know, detailed lessons? Can you remember some specific experiences where, you know, God, Dad, I hate to tell you what happened, but <laughs> you, know, oh, you had to kind of go through the, the learning process with mom or dad. Yeah, there were many, of many, many of those. I can, you know, when we, it was interesting when we would, we went on a lot of family road trips and my dad, you know, was fond at what would today be a podcast deck. Back then it was these cassette tapes um, from various speakers and uh, we'd have to listen to those while we were driving on vacation. Um, kind of like motivational I, speakers or motivational speakers. Yeah. There was this one I remember called acres of diamonds. It was like a 12 cassette series. And we were like, Oh, how, when can we get to the destination? So we don't have to listen to another one of these. But uh, yeah, there were many times when I come home and disappointed my parents after, especially after learning to drive or um, maybe more than one occasion, I was um, learning where, where the guardrails were for growing up. So any other influencers, Dave, you know, coaches, uh, teachers that had a particular influence on your early days? And so what would that have been? Yeah, it was interesting. I, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And I certainly felt that I, um, because it was a small town, I, I, um, it's funny as I think back that, that, you know, in the town we had, there were two pools. One was called the big pool and the other one was called the little pool. And, there was the woods, there was the cemetery, there was the weight room, and everybody knew where all these places were. Uh, there were two neighborhoods that had sort of a formal neighborhoods with one in and street in and out, and one was called the old sub, the other was called the new sub. So, and the tennis courts were on, as you might guess, tennis lane. Um, so life was pretty simple, but I think in that sort of environment, which to me is, you know, was a great place to grow up, you know, my there was a lot of the town sort of felt like was raising all the kids. My, my grandmothers lived in the same town. Uh, both of my grandfathers had passed. Um, and for a long period of time, I lived next door to one of my grandmothers. And so I was very close to both of them. We spent a lot of time together. I did a lot of chores for both of them growing up. Um, but it, oddly, in a town like that, my parents knew all of the teachers, all of my teachers and coaches, and sometimes they were at our house for get-togethers. Um, so the guardrails were pretty tight. Everybody knew everybody's business for sure. Um, I had great aunts and uncles that lived nearby. Two of my best friends from age four are still best friends of mine from today. And, and um, you know, again, there was just a lot of people around the town who knew, you know, our family. They knew myself and my sisters. And there was just, that sort of created some level of support, but also some guardrails and people were always kind of watching over your shoulder. So that was a lot of, I'd say, influence on me growing up. Nice. Were you a good student, Dave? Uh, yeah, I felt like I had to be, to be honest. Uh, fortunately I was, but it didn't come easy. It seems like I, I had a lot of, a lot of homework. Um, and, um, yeah, there were outside of school, even there were just a lot of opportunities to participate in the community. I, there were speech competitions, um, like on 
Memorial Day and things like that. There were school plays, community sports. And it just seems like that's what you did when you were a kid, um, when you were a kid back then. Did and you as, pursue sports and music and theater, do those kind of extracurricular things at school as well? I did, yeah. So um, my uh, my mother's sister is a is a Catholic nun and a, an accomplished musician. So um, she taught all of us to play various instruments. Um, I needed to. I learned pretty quickly that I needed to seek excellence elsewhere. <laughs> So, um, what, I, uh, what, what, what instruments did you give a try early on? David? Oh, the piano, the guitar, um, the singing, a few other things, <laughs> but the, the standard, um, I, I was pretty good at the spoons though. Um, but, um, and then, you know, I, I swam, that was kind of my thing. I, I started swimming at a young age and which ultimately led to an adult career in triathlons. But, Ah, but at that point, sport. you know, swim great. team loves love swimming. Yeah. Swimming. swimming is just a great exercise too. You continue to swim today or you do in triathlons you mentioned? I, I did for a while. I did for a long time. Not anymore. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I do think it's a great sport, but you know, in a, in a two, three hour meet, you might swim for five minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but it is great exercise. What about entrepreneurial things? Uh, you know, did you have the ubiquitous paper route? Did you? sell Christmas cards at Christmas time or any kind of pocket money? Yeah. Well, it was good. Good question. My parents were very supportive about things I needed, but zero support for, th- for, to pay for things I wanted. So I had to, I, I started working at age 12. Um, I first started working at a, at a bingo when I worked for two of my great uncles. And basically I was sold drinks and snacks to people playing bingo and I mowed lawns. You know, I, at one point I had 10 or 12 lawns of, that I was mowing. I was a custodian for a small apartment complex. And, and then when I was 16, I started working at a grocery store as a clerk. Um, so yeah, I mean, work was kind of, again, expected if I wanted to enjoy the finer things of life, uh, which were at that point, a pair of gym shoes or something that my parents didn't think I needed, but I wanted. Right. And you ended up uh, going to school locally, right? University of Cincinnati. I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was nice. It was because it was not too far from, from my house and um, I had to you know pay for my own college. So it was nice that I could still live at home and, and go to school. And you chose not too surpri- unsurprisingly the, the, uh, educational background of your dad, engineering. Was that something that you knew early on? Was it something you gave a try and stuck? What led you to that degree? Uh, yeah. So yeah, as you said, my dad was an engineer. I liked math and science in school and University of Cincinnati was close and I had a good engineering school. So um, yeah, it, it worked out. I actually applied to uh, to be an aerospace engineer. So General Electric has a large aircraft engine plant yep. in the Cincinnati area. And, and I knew, you know, people who had worked there and I thought, you know, that was an interesting career. It, as I, it turns out, I didn't get accepted in the, as an aerospace engineer, but did get accepted into mechanical engineering. And, um, and that, you know, as I said, it worked out and, and it turns out later I did end up working for GE, but at the aircraft engine facility. But um, yeah, I've, it, mechanical engineering became me. It was, I've started identifying, became a big part of my identity. I met another one of my great friends 
there on the first day of school. And to be fair, we got each other through school, or maybe rather he got me through school. Uh, I hope I helped him as much as he helped me. But um, like I said, it became my identity. It was hard. It was hard work, but I was very proud to be an engineer. Do you remember any courses that, that you took that were outside your major? And if so, what were the kind of things you remembered from those? I did, yeah. So uh, only to meet girls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good strategy. I was like, okay, if I take a nutrition class, <laughs> I can get credits for that. And uh, and I was amazed. You know, on campus at that time, there weren't a lot of women in engineering, but um, I couldn't believe how many girls were in the nutrition class. So <laughs> I thought, I got to take a few more of these. That led me to uh, explore my interest in <laughs> a couple other classes outside of the college. It was always a, a little bit longer walk from the three or four buildings that I went to mostly attended engineering classes. But yeah, it was a whole different world on the other side of campus. So you went to GE straight out of school. Stayed in the Cincinnati area then, I presume, right? I did, yeah. Through through college, I lived and worked, and, and in fact, worked at home uh, through all that. And I I was a co-op student there at the GE facility, which was great. And the University of Cincinnati had, um, and more colleges do now, but at that time, a, a great co-op program. So it was a five-year program, and for the middle four, middle three years. You you were either were in school or you were working all year. So work school, work school, and um, you know you just learn a lot about what real work is like. You know, I had had small jobs, but you know, real ap- application of the stuff you were learning in school, which was great. And um, I met quite a few people there. In fact, I was in there one weekend and uh, working, trying to get through a big project, and met one of the senior executives was in in the plant at that day and we ended up talking for 15 minutes and he helped me get um get into one of the leadership development programs after I graduated wow. and um and that led to a, ultimately a you know 17 or 18 year career at GE so when I graduated yeah when I went as soon as I graduated I went to work for GE left Cincinnati and went to work um in another part of the company. Now you got your MBA as well. Did you do that while you were at uh, GE? I did. Yeah. yeah. So uh, after school, I I moved to Indiana for a while, and then um, moved to Colorado, and um, I started an MBA at University of Colorado, and then I finished it at Westminster in Salt Lake City. Um, but yeah, I did that at night. Do that when, at night. Yeah. Well, I had four kids and I, and I had, and I was working during the day. It was a, a busy time. GE's a great training ground. You, you were there during the Jack Welch years, I presume, right? I was, I was, yeah. And met Jack a couple of times and actually reconnected with him later in my career, nice. which maybe come up later. So tell us a little bit about those early days. I, you know, I had some time in Cincinnati for, I remember we talked a little bit about that in our planning yeah. call. P&G, the other big employer, uh, obviously in Cincinnati, didn't start there, but, but loved it. And, you know, there just were so many good people there. And it was so wonderful to be able to work side by side with uh, really so many folks who had had such great experience. And I was literally in awe of them. Was, was GE that kind of place as well? It was. Yeah. I was, I was amazed at the level of talent of people that, especially coming out of school and not really having, you know, not knowing much about leadership or 
or anything about business, really. There were so many talented people there, as you say. In fact, I think you know, at one point there was an article in Fortune magazine that they talked about all the products that GE uh, was into, aircraft engines, and it owned NBC and power systems and and healthcare. And then, that, but the conclusion of the article was that the best product of GE is its leadership. And I certainly felt that there was so many good mentors um, that really were just people to not only look up to, but to help teach, mentor, and guide you through through a career. Did they give you leadership uh, responsibilities pretty early on there, Dave? Yeah, that was that was the crazy part. I you know I graduated <laughs> from school and I. I go to Bloomington, Indiana, and I show up on the first day, and they introduce me to the six people that are going to be working for me. Um, and and I joined, as I said, a leadership training program. So I had it was two years, four six month assignments, and you know you had some flexibility, and you could choose the different careers. And most all of those assignments, I had some leadership responsibility. But literally on day one out of college, I was you know leading a team of of people. And the second role, I had over 100 employees. I was assembly line supervisor at the same plant, but 100 people, you know, reporting into my my role. And that experience was second to none, like you sort of alluded to with the question is that you just learn so much when you have that kind of responsibility when, when you might not even really deserve it or know what to do with it, but you really learn fast. And I'm sure a lot of those folks were probably maybe decades older than you. Certainly, oh yeah, you know many had worked there for a while. How, how did that feel in those early days? It's a little humbling, isn't it? It was it was awkward because I had grown up in a in an environment where, you know, I was helping or working for my parents, peers of my parents, or older. I was a pretty the average age in the town I grew up was probably old. <laughs> um, and, and I, and so I ended up, I was sort of servant to them and then, you know, I'm sort of directing people. So it was, took me a while to get used to that. Um, but you know, you sort of adjust to it and, and people were really honestly great to work with and, and, um, and it became a good learning experience, like I said, and I sort of came into my own as a, as a leader at that, from that experience. What were some of the earliest leadership lessons you took away from that job? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a, again, there's so many great mentors, but a wise mentor told me many, many times said to me, choose, focus, finish. You know, that was the words that he continually said. And I guess over time, I sort of thought about that a lot. Um, that's probably more important today, especially with an unlimited number of distracting sources of data and information. Staying focused is is uh, really what's important and can be a real challenge. And, but, you know, keeping lofty goals on the top of your mind and allocating your time to them prevents, I think, prevents you from getting lost in minutia. Some people call it majoring in the minors. Hmm. And since that time, you know, again, I think that's, that was really good advice early on. So I started- I'd love to hear a little more about that. I mean, I think the focus and finish part is probably pretty obvious, but tell us about the choose. Because well, there's, be there's so many things that you, you know, you can work on and you really have to choose the things mm-hmm. that have the greatest impact on the business or the business unit that you're, that you're working on, or even in your role. I, when I sort of that evolved for me, when I took a new work assignment, you know, I would write my sort of resume of the future. 
um, a couple of years out. Um, and then I would review it and I would write pretty tough goals for myself, three or four things to accomplish. And then I would review it weekly to make sure that I was moving the ball forward on those most meaningful accomplishments. And, you know, you, of course you sit down with your boss and make sure that we agree that those are the right things to be working on. But I think as a great leader, great leaders are always processing large volumes of information, information and turning that into a few meaningful actions and ensuring that those actions are delivering meaningful results mm. and figuring out that formula. I think early in your, or for me early in my career was, I, I believe helpful in, in yielding value for me. That choosing is very important though, isn't it? Because if, oh. you, if you choose and then focus and finish the wrong things, boy, that can really slow up your career. Somebody told me once, you know, it, well, you know, you've heard this many times too. You can, a lot of people confuse activity with results, but some people said it in a way, somebody told me once, you can, you can work up a, a huge sweat on a treadmill and, you know, you're never really moving forward, but you're working hard, but you're never really doing anything that delivers value. So I think you said choosing is critically important. Yeah. Did you have some folks that helped you with that? You know, you talked about mentors earlier, you know, how did you kind of formulate uh, making good choices? Well, of course, you know, some people are uh, more direct, uh, more direct than others, but, um, but yeah, of course, you, you know, you, there's always feedback if you're open to listening, whether you're looking at metrics and, kind of across your business or your team and figuring out which plates aren't quite spinning, um, stably on the, on the stick. But, um, but I do think that you know, there's always, there's always enough, um, guardrails, either people or situations that kind of let you know when you're not choosing wisely on the things that you're working on. Don't let you get too far down the street. You hope not. <laughs> we talked about mentors. And of course, we've always had a few tormentors along the way, too, in our careers. Not that you need to name anybody, but were you in, <laughs> were you in situations where you saw certain behavior, whether it was GE or elsewhere, and said, boy, boy, that's a good lesson. I am never going to do that or never treat people that way. Would you mind sharing with us? <laughs> one or two of those? Yeah, that's, that's funny, too. I've, I guess I'd, I will say I've been lucky to have learned far more from what leaders were doing than what they, or what, what to do than when, then what not to do. But, and I've always tried to stay focused on the positive. I, I read, in fact, something recently, someone said leading a business is a lot like parenting in that your behavior affects everyone and your actions determine how harshly you will be judged later, whether that's fair or not. <laughs> and so, you know, we all make mistakes as, as I've said many times, the last time I walked on water, my hat floated. So uh, I try not to judge, but, but I would say categorically sort of the most, most poor leadership examples that I've seen come from some form of a leader worrying more about what they control than what they contribute, mm. which I think is linked a lot to ego. I think great leaders um, have a strong passion to drive, but a subdued ego Um and, or as I said before, just confusing activity with results. And I think if I kind of bucket the examples of things I've watched not to do, it kind of comes down to those two things. Yeah, makes good sense. So 12, 13 years with GE, I think you mentioned that earlier. 
that's a long career, you know, uh, Proctor and GE were very similar in that, you know, you kind of made it above the grade, you're a leadership, you're probably on the rise, but you left and went on to brand. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But what, you know, how, what was the thought process at that time when you made, finally made the decision to move on? Great question. I, I was actually at GE for 18 years, 18, 18 years, uh-huh. including my co-op experience. And I had you know, my career was progressing. I had tremendous opportunities. I lived or worked all over the all over the world and had a number of operational and functional roles. And um, and I at the time I was working for a um a guy who who left the company and went to work for a private equity backed company. And you know, I was working for him and. He and I enjoyed working for him, and I, and I eventually followed him to uh, to this by comparison to GE small company, and I ended up working for him for 15 years, a great mentor in my career, um, and we we and other people accomplished a lot as we continued to grow the, the business that we went to. But um, at that, you know, I think in that particular case, I was working for somebody that I knew. It was an industry that was related. But it didn't compete with GE, which I didn't want to do. Right. Um, and so it was a good, but it was different. You know, it was a great, it was just a great opportunity working for a small PE backed company, private equity backed company compared to a large publicly traded Fortune 5 company it was a completely different experience. And, you know, I think ultimately um, a lot of the thinking was that, um, it will, you know, help round out my experience as a leader um, with kind of a different environment to work in. And you spent about 17, 18 years there as well. I was, yeah. So I had, I had five, I'd say five major roles there. Um, two of them were really hard. I was there for, as you said, 17 years. Ten of those years I lived and worked outside the U.S., so got had some international experience and two of those roles were really hard turnarounds or started off as turnarounds of companies that we had acquired that um, that kind of went south. So I lived in Canada for uh, six years and I lived in Europe for almost three years. Um, and it was just a tremendous experience. At the end of that, I was leading a team of over 25,000 employees in multi- many, many countries. And and once again, through that experience, had some incredible mentors, um, not just the, the guy I was working for at the time, who, as I said, was a great mentor for, for over 15 years and still is. But, um, but also from the private equity firm, one of them held, held us for quite a long time. And, and I learned a lot from some of the leaders that were in that organization. Quick compare and contrast, thinking about... The lessons learned at GE and, you know, obviously lessons learned at, at Brand Energy. What do you think were the skills that you used the most? And what did you really have to learn in that private equity owned environment? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I think, you know, people ask me that when I left. And I think one thing that I kept coming back to is analogy. When you, when, you know, when you're a kid, um, you know, you go to the amusement park and they have those rides where 
you know, you get in the, the car and, and you know, there's a steering wheel and some pedals and you think, what, am, what are they doing? I'm not old enough to drive. How are they going <laughs> to help me have this responsibility? And then the, the car starts moving and you step on the gas and you think you're turning the wheel, but then you take your hands off the wheel and you take your foot off the pedal and the car keeps moving. And there's a guard and a rail down the front that keeps the car on track. And a little bit, GE was so well run and well managed with so many good people and the processes were very well established. It was kind of hard to go off the rails. And a that was a little bit like that. What, when you, when I went to work in a smaller company, I realized that it was easier to break things. And so there's this kind of heightened sense of, of you have to be more intentional and more careful about your actions because, and, and really think about your, about the consequences uh, because you have to kind of work hard to break glass in a, in a larger company like that. And I think, you, you, as I said, you have to be more wary, aware of what things you can do when you don't have that depth of talent and when you don't have that many established processes in a business. So um, I think just understanding that difference was, was key uh, for me and, and kind of helped me be successful in a, in a world of started off as a very small company and then, and then grew. Now you left as president and obviously now you're CEO of UES. Same question kind of as before. Tell us about that transition. Cause again, another 17 year career, you know, that's a long time. Gosh, I'm sure, you know, you went through a lot of transitions as a family, particularly the moving around, et cetera. Um, tell us a little bit about that decision process and, you know, taking in your CEO role. Yeah. So that was, um, it was a great opportunity. Um, and I, I happened to meet um, some of the people, the private equity company and the chairman of, of UES that really, again, I felt were tremendous people. And I felt like for me, this was just the next stage of learning and development and growth. I think that there's no, I do know, and I'm really well aware that throughout the chapters of my life, whether my, my parents and upbringing, my experience at GE or my experience at, at brand, I think all kind of positioned me really for this role. But I think, you know, early on having, as I said, my parents had very high expectations of accountability at a young age. And I think that made something that's kind of been with me and I've sort of learned and observed throughout time is that, you know, whether whether you are or not an owner, you have to always act or should always act like an employee owner and you have to be the part before you have the part. I think that was super helpful for me and kind of helped prepare me for the role. Um, I had met people along the way who had always said, I heard this phrase that I thought was really interesting is that promotability and pay is directly correlated to how far ahead you think hmm. and, and act and and how long it takes the company to recover from one of your mistakes. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about much less about span of control. So again, it really drives this strong sense of ownership. And so, um, and we, you know, at brand for a private equity company, as you know, multiple of invested capital or MOIC and ROI are really important. Um, in the 17 years that we were with brand, um, 
there, you know, I went, we, the company went from around 350 million in revenue in one country to about $5 billion and over 40 acquisitions and over, um, and, uh, over 25 or 30 of those I had direct involvement with either in due diligence or in, in negotiating or in, in integrating and running the business afterwards. So we had, you know, a 17 year run with 12 times, MOIC 12 times money and 16 and a half percent annual return. And I felt like those, this not only, not, not only running a business at scale, but more importantly, helping lead and being a part of that transition from a small company to a larger company was invaluable for the role that I have now. So meeting those guys and feeling like, like I had something to, to offer was really a big part of the, the thought process. Um, of making this role and feeling comfortable that and confident this was a team I wanted to be a part of. And, and this was that I felt like I could bring something to the organization. You've been about 18 months in the role and uh, obviously you're, you know, now the man in that corner office. How would you say your leadership style has really evolved over the last 30 plus years? Yes. Interesting. I, I think you get more, I think I've gotten more comfortable asking the seemingly dumb question. Um, it's amazing how, how it helps people, you know, think along. I try to, I try to say less and mean more because I think if you can say more impactful words, then your impact can make it through more layers in the organization. Um, I think, you know, another thing is I've had a lot of varying experiences, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And, and that allows, has helped me have more of an outsider perspective on the business and, and therefore, and maybe more confidence to act more quickly. Um, and I think also have evolved as, you know, there's a term that they used to use at GE, it was called ambidextrous thinking, where you can kind of think about growth and cost. And you can think about strategy and details kind of at the same time. And you're sort of spanning um, different things to think about in, in any one day. And I think the experience that I've had in the past has, you know, continued to help me, uh, help me grow in that area. I think leadership to me is about always about finding the, the balance or finding the line. And I think everybody's style evolves a little bit differently, but you know, from being, you know, the balance between collaborative and decisive or the balance between delegating and coaching and to getting personally involved or the balance between um, having, you know, being a great doer versus being a great thinker and managing the balance of power in an organization. Uh, from, in my case, our company is uh, a branch-based service business. And I think you always have to manage the balance of power between the headquarters and the field or functions, HR, IT, finance versus the operations. So I think just being able to find the balance and sense when, when things are getting out of balance is some of the skills that, that I've kind of developed over, over the years. And I'm still learning. That's good. That's a good thing. Company culture, you know, there's so much written about it. And uh, we talked a little bit about before the podcast, the importance of that. 
you know, what would you say is both unusual or perhaps unique about UES company culture? And, and how do you kind of do that? How do you keep it on track or how do you move it in the direction that, you know, deepens that cultural feeling across your employee base? Yeah, so I think one thing is that we try to stress and I try to stress with, especially with our leadership team, and I stole this phrase from Shane Battier, um, who who played in the NBA, and I listened to a few podcasts and books from him. Is about, you know, you have to have players at the at the at the leadership level in the company that play more for the front of the jersey than the back of the jersey, mm. and you know, our leadership team it has to be the first team, and. And I, you know, we talk about this a lot when we get together as a leadership group that our company will never be that company unless you and all of our, each of our people on our leadership team are, is that person. And it's so, I I think it's, it's critically important. And I think that's a big part of us um, managing culture is having a team at the, at the top of the organization that are really connected, collaborative care about our employees and our customers and, you know, discuss and debate healthy debate um, actions and initiatives that we're going to resource and, and spend time on as a team. So I I think that's really, that's what I think is unique or I hope to be unique about the business. And and that's kind of how we, I think we keep it, we keep it moving forward. I know you're not involved in a lot of the day-to-day hiring, but I know you folks are growing. But you do get involved, obviously, in direct reports, maybe one, you know, relationship down the line. What, what do you look for, Dave, when you're making bets on the people you invest in at hiring UES? So I think the first thing is, and this is really all throughout my career, I've learned that it's, I think I look for people that are and people, not or people. Mm. Every action every action that people take has multiple dimensions to it. And um, yes, we have to get better and lower cost. And a lot of people can't think that way, but I think there's, there's a lot of people who are, and people are just um, more successful. And I think the other thing is people that expect to win. Now, wherever they got that from their past, playing sports or whatever, um, so much of as you know, and we all know that being optimistic and having a positive attitude and believing you can win is this first step to to winning. And, you know, as we talked about before, I think accountability is an important skill set. People that think like an employee, employee owner. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of my mentors, you know, we had a, again, I was really fortunate to work and in fact, one of the, the private equity company that was heavily involved in brand for the last part of uh, the last almost half of my career there was they had some fantastic leaders. And one of the one of the leaders in that group was very wise and a great mentor of mine. But, um, you know, he, he made a f- few thoughts that I hear. He shared some thoughts, thoughts with me that I thought were really interesting. He said, you know, every day when I wake up, I always think our price is too low. <laughs> I always think our costs are too high. I always remind myself that the people that we work for are in it to make money. And I need to surround myself with people that know how and expect to win. And I think those are things that really, if you, you stay focused on 
it's really those are good guidelines to to think about as you interview people or as you're thinking about your own development to make sure, like we talked about earlier, you don't get too far off the ranch. Do you have a favorite interview question or, or perhaps process that you like and really helps separate the wheat from the chaff from folks that are going to join UES? I have a, a favorite book that that I like that walks about. It's, it's the book's called Who, an interview, their method for hiring or an interview guide. And, you know, I like when, uh, you know, we talk to people about this, their, especially their last, you know, three or four jobs, maybe their last five to 10 years in their career, you know, really understanding what were they hired to do, what accomplishments are they most proud of, what were the low points in that job, and then who were the people they worked with, and then why did they leave that job? It's amazing if you just talk to somebody about the last two or three jobs and you ask those questions, it's amazing how much you can learn about mm. them and access or assess their skill and will for the job you're looking to hire them for. Yeah, great stuff. Well, Dave, you've been very generous with your time, but we're just about out of it. But we always have one last question we ask all our CEO guests, and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that maybe has their own eyes set on the corner office someday? Yeah, I, um, I you know, I think, I think you got to take the hard job. I think sometimes uh, the harder jobs, you can learn five times the learning in half the time. And, you know, I, I, I say this a lot, you know, any kayaker can navigate. It's easier for a kayaker to navigate a full river, but when the water's down and there's a lot more rocks, it's a lot tougher and you need more, you need more skills to, mm-hmm. to navigate the river. And I think a lot of times, you know, great markets or a lot of momentum can destroy creativity and skill development. And uh, people are like tea bags. You, you and they never really know what's inside them until you're in there in hot water. And that experience is, can be really useful. And I benefited from that. And I think it, I think it helps you develop your skills more quickly. Sage Council. Dave Witzkin, Chief Executive Officer of Universal Engineering Sciences. Thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 